We don't really have time for this, but I couldn't resist and um, uh, wrote this in 2000 after we did a year of contracted work and came home and had no idea uh, how I was going to pay for the house, uh, pay for food, feed the kids, uh, my wife and three children and one on the way. And um, But obviously I'm here today. So God uh, took care of us. Um, so in these uncertain times, uh, whether uh, you are, uh, whether you have a lot to lose or you have nothing to lose, uh, I thought you might enjoy this little song that um, maybe crack, make you crack a little smile and uh, you might realize that uh, we don't really got nothing to worry about. Well, I was just a young man when Jesus called to me Said, take up your cross, son, and follow me So I packed my bags to carry all I could No room to carry across the wood Cause I had my great big house, flat screen DVR iPod collection and my fancy car Don't forget my personal computer And my lovely clothes Jesus took one look at me Said, son, don't you know Now you can't take it Now you can't take it Now you can't take it with you Now you can't take it Now you can't take it now you can't take it with you this time Well, my younger days have left me and much of those desires But I got it made in Florida where since I've retired But it was late last night The Lord called out my name Meet me at the pearly gates Catch the next train So I brought my house on the beach Golf clubs and the cart A gross stock portfolio And some works of art Don't forget my yacht at the boathouse And my motor home Jesus took one look at me Said, son, don't you know Now you can't take it Now you can't take it now you can't take it with you Now you can't take it Now you can't take it Now you can't take it with you This time Not this trip and not this road Can't carry a cross when you carry that load Leave the lesser for the greater Serve your master, love your savior Lay it all down, lay it on the line Cause you know you can't take it with you This time Now you can't take it Now you can't take it with you Now you can't take it Now you can't take it Now you can't take it with you this time you just gotta have a little fun every once in a while so know there's a lot going on in our country 
Everybody's talking about political candidates, but uh, today we're here to talk about Jesus. We're not talking about the kingdom of the United States. We're here to talk about the kingdom of God. And uh, we've been talking about something that's kind of like the constitution of the kingdom of heaven, uh, which is the, the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, really, it's Jesus's vision for what he desires his people to be. Uh, it's the ideal and what he hopes for us. And uh, we're looking at what uh, Sermon on the Mount that's recorded in Matthew 5 through 7. And we realize that this is, uh, he's speaking to his followers, those who are putting their trust in him. Sorry, I couldn't see you over there. Um, and the Sermon on the Mount, um, Jesus is, is trying to, his concern is for the heart and, uh, and how there is internal change that leads to the external change. And what he's concerned about is this internal change. And uh, when we, last week we looked at the first, uh, chap, uh, first part of chapter 6, and uh, this week we're going to look at the second part of chapter 6. But last week uh, Jesus was speaking about this inner devotional life, this relationship to our Father. And Jesus confronts us with the choice of pleasing ourself or pleasing God. And that's what it comes down to. Are, are you playing to the audience or are you playing to God? And, uh, and he tells Christ followers not to focus on the self but to focus upon God. And in the second part of chapter 6 that we're going to look at today, Jesus still speaks to his followers in the context of relationship to the Father. But he's no longer talking about a devotional life or practices of righteousness. He's instead speaking about how to overcome the cares of this world while living in the midst of this world, which is all of our troubles. And, you know, and I know uh, on that video, Rich's brother said, well, Rich identified this... Uh, tug on his heart and it was something that he did for himself or whatever you know what we all we all sense that tug we all feel the tug of the things of this world so it's not just not just him uh, that feels it we do too and and in the first part of chapter six Jesus continues to speak of our father in heaven who knows our hearts and knows the tugs and knows our needs he knows what's real what we really need and in the second part of chapter six you'll see that Jesus is not only concerned with his father's hearts but he also is concerned about our minds and how we think and what we think and three times Jesus repeats himself he says therefore take no thought or as other translations put it do not worry therefore do not worry so uh, from verses 19 to 24, Jesus deals with the love of the world. And then in verses 25 to 34, he deals with anxiety and the cares of the world, which really try to conquer us and, and take over us. And he treats both problems in terms of our relationship to our Heavenly Father. Again, uh, throughout chapter 6, that is the word, another word that is repeated over and over. Your Heavenly Father. So as citizens of a heavenly kingdom... Uh, let's first take a look at what Jesus says about this tug on our hearts uh, towards the love of the world. Uh, Jesus begins very bluntly with a negative command and then a positive command. And he says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where, most, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up, here's the positive, but instead store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. So treasures is really a, a pretty large term there, and it's, it's all inclusive. I mean, it includes all money, but it also includes, includes things that are not money. You know, our Lord is, is concerned not so much about our possessions, but our attitude towards our possessions. There's nothing wrong with having wealth in and of itself. What can be wrong is your relationship to your wealth. That's what can get you. You see, if your total satisfaction in this life is from things that belong to this world only, 
then you've confined your ambitions, your interests, and hopes only to this life. There's a guy out in California who had his things set only on the things of this world. Uh, you may have read the headlines. Jason sent it to me in an email. And a guy in California is a fi- uh, master's in, in business uh, administration, a uh, financial guy, lived in a really wonderful neighborhood, uh, lost his job with Sony. Uh, all his investments started disappearing when he's looking at the stock market. And so he decided that he would uh, take the life of his family and kill himself. And uh, six people dead uh, in this little gated community in, in Southern California. And uh, that was somebody who had their eyes totally fixed on the things of this world. And I know for myself, and there's probably a lot of other people that just wish they could have had a moment with that guy before he made that decision. Just to say, look, man, there's, there's more to this life and you'll get through this. The Lord will see you through it. But nobody got to him. And so one of the reasons that I'm really talking about this today and, and in this, with everything behind it, is, is just, I hope there's none of you that despair in such a way like that. And if you are, I just want you to know, man, lift your eyes up. Look, look to your Heavenly Father. And I hope in the next few moments you'll, you'll do that and realize that you have a Father who cares for you and you can get through it. According to Jesus, um, you know, when, when we have our satisfaction only in this life and the things of this world, and, we, and when we've only confined our ambitions and our interests to the hopes in this life, well, that's trouble. He says it's trouble. We all have different kinds of treasures. I mean, uh, I might have a love of a house. You might have a love of money or a love of honor, or there's a love of position. There might be a love of status. It's treasure. It's the thing for which you are living. That's what treasure is. Jesus bluntly says, don't store up treasure on earth. And then he gives the positive command saying, instead, store up for, your treasure, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Now again, Jesus isn't talking about salvation or trying to ensure your eternal destiny. That's already been settled on the cross, all right? So that's, that's not what he's talking again. Jesus, again, like he did earlier in chapter 6, thank you, and in chapter 5 in this same message, this same sermon, Jesus is speaking of reward. It has nothing to do with salvation. And, and I know for some folks that's really disturbing, that, that God would reward people and that others he wouldn't, although they'd all be in heaven. And I know that's frustrating. Uh, but I, I just want to say, you might be confusing Jesus with Karl Marx, okay? Um, it's not the same, all right? Uh, that whole cutting down and equality and making everything just right uh, doesn't work with grace and mercy, all the time, all right? So Jesus and the apostles at different points all teach of storing up treasure or reward in heaven. In relation to this, I think 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6 explains a little more. It says, command those who are rich, which I believe is every American. Again, I'm, I'm stepping outside of the scripture here and saying that. Uh, I believe is every American. Even if you live on the street, you're richer than anybody in any other country. Uh, well, okay, the poor in another country. But command those who are rich, in this present world, not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they, are, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Jesus tells us not, not to labor after things that spoil 
and fade, but to labor after things that last and are eternal. John 4, 33 and 34. Uh, I don't think that's going to come up on, strings, on screens. That one's for free. Um, our possessions are not our own, okay? Uh, we ha- merely have them on lease. According to the scriptures, you are just a custodian of them and you will not take them with you out of this life, right? We are never to lose sight of the fact that we are just pilgrims. We are travelers in this world and walking in this world in the direction towards God and towards our eternal hope. Every day is a milestone that we're passing never to go back to again. And each day we pinch this moving tent of ours one day's march closer to heaven each day. Now, after giving these two commands to not store up treasure on earth, uh, but instead store up in heaven, he gives the reasons for this. And the first reason is just common sense. Things of earth break. They rust. They decay. They fall apart. And, and if you think about it spiritually, too, the things of earth never fully satisfy. I mean, have you guys learned that yet? My kids are, are starting to figure that out. They're, they're starting to. They're not quite, but they're still... You know, the Christmas list is already coming out right now. But we may gather new things, but we always tend to grow tired of them. And we lose interest in them. You pluck a beautiful flower, and it begins immediately to die. And and soon you just throw it away. And that is the way of everything in this world. It is passing away. You know, Jesus mentions theft of our goods. And, And there are not only thieves that steal things, but there are other things that can steal and rob treasure from us, or whatever your treasure may be. But Jesus explains that heaven is a place where nothing belonging to death, nothing tainted or polluted can enter into heaven. That the treasures of the soul and the spirit are safe there. So, store up the stuff that's going to be safe. Store up the things that are going to last. But the big reason that Jesus gives us for storing treasure in heaven is this. And it's a great big truth bomb. And here it is. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's a whopper. Wow. I mean, do I want my heart to be where things are going to decay, rust, and die? Or do I want my heart to be where there's light and life eternally? I mean, that's a silly rhetorical question. I mean, we all know that. We know the answer to that. That's what we know what we want. Jesus tells us in this statement that the things of this world can grip our hearts and they can, they can master our feelings they can, and we can fall in love with these things of the world. You know, we, we pretend that we only like them, but really we love them. And they not only grip our hearts, but they can grip our minds. You know, Jesus puts it this way about the mind. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? All right, this whole illustration of the eye is describing in in the way that we look at things or perceive things. You know, if I got goo on the front of my eye when I wake up in the morning and I don't remove the goo from my eye, I'm not going to see things clearly no matter how long I stare at them or how whether the light is good or bad in the room. You know, when Jesus says that your eye is bad, it would be like your vision being tainted by something or having goo in it or being tainted by certain prejudices or lust or desires. It's not a clear vision. 
It's always going to be clouded or tainted by those things. So this love for earthly treasure can be like that goo or that tainting in your eye. You know, I, I can see the robber smashing the window over there and taking the jewelry as theft. But hey, me manipulating my tax return? Come on now. You see, got the goo in the eye. Got to get it out. So this tainting of treasure upon our view really dulls our minds and affects and sometimes even determines our, our service and our heart towards what we'll give to God, whether it be our sweat, energy, or money. I, you know, I think of this, this story of the, there's a farmer who got real excited and he uh, came in and told his wife, hey, our cow, she gave birth to, to two calves, twins, and we got this, this white calf and this red calf. And man, I'm so excited. And I just, I just, I just right now want to say, let's, let's give one of these Cow, these calves away to God. We'll let them. We'll feed it. We'll have grow it up. And we'll sell it in market, and then we'll give it all to God. The for the one one calf. And his wife. Okay, let's do it. And which one should we dedicate to God? He's like, oh, we'll we'll figure it out later. Don't worry about that. Well, time goes on, feeding the calf, growing up, and anyway, one of the calves dies, and the farmer comes in with his shoulders all slumped down and shuffling into his wife, and he says, "Honey, the Lord's calf died." It's got a tug on us, pulls us, and it can affect our mind. And what we decide we're going to, how we're going to serve the Lord, what we're going to give to the Lord, does it affect you that way too? Jesus says that the things of the world can grip our will also. He says no one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Bam, another truth bomb. The truth of the statement is that both God and money make totalitarian demands of us. They want everything. The things of this world can grip our mind, our heart, and our will and demand our entire devotion. They want us to live for them absolutely. But guess what? So is God. You remember the greatest command? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's a totalitarian demand. He wants it all. There's no compromise when it comes to God or money. It's an either or statement. And compromise is completely impossible. So, you know, in talking about the subject, uh, another issue enters into the scene, this whole thing. And uh, it's this question of, but I do live in this world. And how am I supposed to operate in it with, without being defeated by this worldliness, you know? How am I supposed to make it? Well, it's, it's kind of a crazy thing. You know, you got these two issues. You think you've won the battle against Satan because you conquered him when he came in the front door and talked to you about laying up treasure on earth. And you think you got that one conquered, but before you're aware of it, you'll find that he's walking in through the back door and he's causing you to have anxious concerns about all these things. Worry. And he tries to get you with one or the other. See, the problem is the same for both. Whether it's amassing things on earth or being worried over what we need, the problem with both is being oppressed and obsessed with things. See, there's a lot of poor people, people without, that are just as worldly and are just obsessed and possessed about things as rich people. It goes both ways. So, Jesus in verses uh, 25 to 34 says, turn your eyes away from the things of the world. Turn them to the Heavenly Father. 
And Jesus repeatedly says, don't worry or take no thought about these things. Now, a better, better illustration of what he means by take no thought are, are the sisters, Martha and Mary. Uh, you know, he goes over to visit. He wants to see Lazarus. And uh, Martha is doing all the preparations and Mary sits down to listen to Jesus. And uh, Martha gets upset with Mary. And Jesus confronts Martha and says, well, you know, you're worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. See, Martha was distracted. And, and that's the real meaning of this expression, take no thought. You know, we're in danger of being distracted by the main objective of life, by the worry over the things of the world. See, look at, look at Jesus' examples of the birds. See, Jesus isn't saying, don't think about these things at all. Because when you look at the birds, his example, I mean, the birds just don't sit on a branch and, you know, wait for some kind of mechanical feeding to happen for them. They actually go out and they, they search for food and they pick it up and God provides the food that they need for each day. So it's, it's not this, this, what Jesus is telling us is not some sort of passive waiting around and doing nothing. See, God doesn't condemn the farmer for plowing and planting seed and reaping and gathering into barns. You know, the Apostle Paul says that if a man doesn't work, then neither should he eat. So sitting around doing nothing isn't the right interpretation of these verses in this passage. Jesus' concern is his people being oppressed and weighed down by these things. He doesn't want us to be controlled by these things. That's the deal. Now, the reason Jesus gives us the command not to worry over things is this. He says, he asks this question. Is not life more important than food and the body and what you'll wear? You know, basically, Jesus is saying, this life you're worrying about, where'd it come from? This life that you're living, how did you get it? Where's it come from? And the answer is, it's a gift from God. I mean, none of us here decided to come into the world. <laughs> Somebody else made that decision for you. You see, and, and the reasoning continues like this. If God has given you this gift of life, which you had nothing to do with, and it's the greater gift, do you think that he will deny himself and his own methods and not see to it that your life is sustained and enabled to continue? God never leaves his work unfinished. And what he started, he will finish. And, and we can never regard our lives as accidental. And we must trust God to provide sustenance and support for our life. You know, Jesus presents the big gift of life as the case being in God's hands. And then he supports his statement with the s smaller examples, the birds and the flowers. Jesus said, look at the birds. See what's right in front of your eyes. See, yes, yes, God has commanded man to work. But look at these little birds who God sees to it that there is something for them to eat every day. And he sees to it that their life is sustained. Are you not much more valuable than they, Jesus asked. And the reasoning is this. Your father feeds these birds. How much greater concern will he have for caring for his children? Remember, he sees you as his child. It's the relationship to the father. Jesus is bringing us back to that. Remember your relationship to the father. Then Jesus says, uh, he brings in the flowers. And he says, not just to look at the flowers, but he says, consider the flowers. Think about them. Think about the flowers, guys. The flowers are transient. They're here today, gone tomorrow. You know, there are some flowers around here, up in some mountain meadows. 
that they, they sprout, they grow, they bloom, and they die. And nobody, not one human eye, sees those flowers. And the only one who sees them is God. And yet God cares for these flowers in these mountain meadows that no one ever sees. But what about you? What about you? You're not here today and gone tomorrow. In fact, you have an eternal soul. You're going to go on and on. Jesus says, will he not much more clothe you, O little faith? And this is the part that gets me and convicts my heart, Shannon McCready. It's, it's the ultimate cause of all my trouble. You, a little faith. He doesn't say my faith is absent or not there, but he tells me that my faith is small and insufficient. And you see, many times I'm like the disciples or in the, in the swamp boat with Jesus, and he's, and he's asleep. And I'm crying out to him, wake up, save me here. And Jesus wakes up and he asks, where's your faith? Where is your faith? You have faith, but where is it? Where'd it go? Why don't you apply your faith in this situation? And so, if you think of your, uh, me, think of the pastor of this church, uh, that would be how you could pray for me. Apply your faith, Shannon. I, you know, I mentioned my family, and I, I really don't have worry or ever fear about God taking care of us. Where it comes into is this church. Uh, I, I get concerned about the staff and taking care of them. I get concerned about folks here and what's going on. And that's where, that's where you can pray for me, that I, I will have faith. But I, I wonder, you know, have you guys done the same? Or maybe you've limited your faith to only certain things. Maybe you, you just limit your faith and it's only reserved for salvation and never for everyday affairs of life? Is your faith confined? Is it limited and small in scope? Being of little faith means that we are mastered by our circumstances instead of mastering them. You know, the picture of, of a person of faith in the Bible is someone who's above their circumstances, one who can, who can even rejoice in their trials. You see, the real problem with my little faith is that I'm not thinking I'm just not thinking. It's the absence of thought. It's surrender and defeat being controlled by something else. You see, if you lie awake at night for hours, what you've been doing is going around and around in circles, going over the same miserable details. And that is not thought. That is the failure to think. See, what, what is it then that I do need to think? Well, I made my little list. Here's the things that I, I need to think. And maybe you might need to think these things too. But one is, I, I need to think that his word is spoken to me. I know in context, it was spoken to people 2,000 years ago. But it's for me also. His word is spoken to me. And his promises are spoken to me. Two, I, I need to think that he is my father. And I'm his child. Takes care of the birds. He'll take care of his child. I need to think his purposes are unchangeable. And, and if I'm in difficult circumstances, I don't have to fear because his purposes are going to come to pass. They will. And, and I've got to think of his great love. You know, the tragedy is that I don't know the love of God as I should. You know, the Apostle Paul, he prayed for the Ephesians. 
He prayed for them that they'd be able to grasp how wide and how great and how deep the love of Christ is. And then that they'd be able to rest in it. And that's what I need to be able to do. I've got to think about his concern for me. And that he knows everything about me and all the details. And like he said earlier, when he's teaching us to pray, he knows what I need before I even ask for it. And then the last thing that I need to be thinking is I must think about his ability. Who is my God who takes such a personal interest in me? He is the maker of all things. He is the sustainer of all things. So where's my faith? Where is it? It's not that it's not there. It's just where is it? I've got to think and apply my faith in the circumstances I find myself in. So, and I, I can't give into thinking that says life is accidental. I, I can't give into thinking that says what will be will be and is fatalistic. You know, that's the way the pagans think. That, that's, that's why they run after all the things of earth. You know, Jesus says, I'm not to be like them. And instead, I'm to think and live with certainty. With certainty. This life I live is in the hands of God. If I live my life full of anxiety and worry, I'm virtually living like the spiritually dead. And I'm taking a pagan view of life. A pagan view of life has a pagan view of life in the next world, too. Everything is uncertain. It's living life continually seeking the things of this world to live for them because it's the only knowledge they have. The thought and view is to get the most out of this life because there is no certainty for the next. You know what? I, I can't live like that as a Christ follower. If you, if you can talk about the correct view of salvation, but then you still live life in general like the pagans, chasing after the things of stuff and of, of the earth, then you're just a spiritual worldling. You're just a spiritual worldling. You're chasing after food, drink, clothing, position, wealth, and being controlled by the things you seek. As a Christ follower, I've got to live a life of faith and believe that my Heavenly Father knows that I need some of these things of this world to live, to make it. You know, you and I are not left to ourselves. We're not left alone. Even when Jesus was deserted by his followers, he said, Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. He really is. And his promise to us is that he will never leave us, never forsake us. And that, that verse up there is in context talking about money, things of this world. Okay? In contrast to the pagans who seek the things of the world, we're instead to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And seek carries the same meaning as it did for the pagans, to look for it earnestly, to intensely live for it. And Jesus adds to his command, seek first the kingdom of God. First is telling us that it needs to be priority. It needs to be up there on the list over everything else. This statement isn't telling you how to make yourself a Christ follower. It's simply telling you as a Christ follower how you're to behave. It's telling you how your priorities should be as a Christ follower. We must diligently seek. The Apostle Paul speaks to this and he says that we're not to fix our eyes on the seen, but on the unseen. In his letter to the Colossians, he says to set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. 
It's choosing eternal things over the temporal things, the temporary things. This is what it means to seek the kingdom of God. In addition, Jesus says also to seek his righteousness, which we already talked about in the Beatitudes, in hunger and thirst for righteousness. And that's not a self-righteousness. It's a righteousness that comes from God. It's apart from us. But we need to seek it from him. Attached to this command is a promise. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What are those things? The things that the pagans chase after. You see, the heathen does nothing but think about and live for those things. Spiritual worldlings pray about those things and nothing else but never find satisfaction. But the Christ follower prays about and seeks the kingdom of God. And those other things, they're added. They're thrown in on the deal. They're provided for. Now up to this point, Jesus has spoken of the cares of the world in terms of the present. But in this last verse of chapter 6, he just goes for it. And he just finishes this whole portion of thought And he takes on not only the present, but he takes on the future. And where anxiety and worry comes in. He says, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You you ever tried to help somebody who's really struggling, suffering from worry? And maybe you provide all the reasons, all the answers for why they don't have to worry. They don't need to worry. But then almost invariably, the next thing that, that they say is... Yes, but it's like that person wants to be relieved from their worry, but the worry doesn't. The answers are there, but the person says, well, that's all right for today, but what about tomorrow? What about next week? You know, the worry almost becomes this kind of perverse condition that a person doesn't desire to be relieved from or delivered from. And, you know, and Jesus kind of identifies this when he personalizes worry. And he says, tomorrow is worrying about itself. You know, that's kind of regarding worry as, as a power. Almost like a person that takes hold of you and in spite of yourself keeps arguing with you. You know, one of the main results of, of this kind of worry is, is the future. This worry over the future is that it cripples you for today. When you worry about the future, it cripples you for today. And it lessens your whole efficiency with regard to into the, of today, and, and thereby you're reducing your, your entire, your whole efficiency with re, in regards to the, the future that's just coming right at you. Worry just messes you up. Jesus tells us that we've got to live every day, and each day must be lived in and of itself and as a unit. See, every day has its problems, he says. There's a quota for today. So don't go forward and tack tomorrow's problems onto today. Onto today. You know, or it's going to be too much for you. This is what Jesus is saying one day at a time. You know, you see Jesus thinking this way when his disciples warn him about going back to unfriendly Judea to see Lazarus. They, they pointed out to him the possible uh, consequences of how it might shorten his life. The Jews might kill him. And his answer to them was, are there not 12 hours in a day? You got to live just 12 hours at a time and no more. Here's the quota for today, and you face it, and you deal with it. But don't worry about tomorrow. You know, we've got to take things to God as they arise. 
Never try to anticipate God nor God's future for you. Live day by day and do what God asks of you to do each day. Again, you know, the example of the farmer who plows, plants, reaps, and gathers shows us it's, it's not that we don't prepare or plan, but it's when thoughts about tomorrow concern us so much, they dominate our life and limit our usefulness for today. Now, I want you to know if you're here, uh, and again, talking to this farmer illustration, you might be somebody who's a really good farmer. I mean, you, you plow a lot, you plant a lot, you reap a lot. You put a lot away in the barn. And that's all right. You don't have to, you don't have to feel guilty because you're a good farmer. And then there's a, those of us who, who may not plow as much, may not plant as much, may not reap as much, not as much in the barn. That's all right too. And you don't have to feel guilty about that either. All right? Again, we need to keep in mind our relationship to our Father and how we view that relationship to what those things of the earth. All right? See, there's a sense that, that we've got to commit ourselves to God once and forever. But there's also another sense where we have to do it every day. And there's grace once and forever, but there's also the other sense where he gives grace in parts and portions day by day. And we've got to start coming to each day saying, okay, here's the day I'm going to face, and there's going to be certain problems and certain difficulties in it. So I'm going to need God's grace to help me. I know that. And I'm going to trust that he's going to make his grace abound to me, and it's going to be enough, and it's going to be according to what I need today. You know, and after that verse in Hebrews 13, 5, where it says God will never leave you or forsake you, there's a verse that follows that, Hebrews 13, 8. It says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. In effect, he says to us, you don't need to worry because what he was yesterday, he's going to be today and he's going to be tomorrow. You don't need to anticipate everything in life. The Christ who takes you through today will be the same Christ tomorrow. He is changeless, everlasting, always the same. So you must not give in to worrying about your thoughts for tomorrow. Instead, think about the changeless Jesus. Jesus. Right now, the guys are going to come up. We're going to close in a song and prayer. But uh, I just want to wrap things up in, in what I just, just shared with you. Basically, summation. These commands and promises here in chapter 6, like the rest of his sermon, are made only to his followers. They're made to his followers. Second, your Father in heaven desires you to trust him and his care for you. He wants you to seek him living for him first, priority over everything else. Third, is that worry and fear is always the failure to grasp and apply our faith. So tend to your faith by refusing those anxious thoughts and thinking of today and tomorrow with the knowledge that your heavenly Father is with you and he's going to provide grace for today. Right? Heavenly Father, I know that there's different things that each of us face but Lord you know the details of our life and like you know the number of hairs on our head and you know when a sparrow falls Lord we're your children and you know what's going on and Lord we want to trust that you care about us and so Father I do pray for these people and the things that they face today and Lord I pray that they may release tomorrow to you Father help us to walk in faith help us to apply our faith to our circumstances today I pray this in Jesus name Amen.